Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, the relationship between art and violence in Draw Your Weapons, the latest book from critical theorist Sarah Santillis. Sarah Santillis is a writer, critical theorist and scholar of religion. Her earlier books are Breaking Up With God, A Church of Her Own and Taught by America and she has degrees from Yale and Harvard and has taught at a number of American colleges. And Sarah's latest book, which we're going to talk about today, is Draw Your Weapons. Sarah, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you. I'm so happy to be with you. So what's the idea behind Draw Your Weapons? How would you describe it? Well, I wrote the book because I was influenced by two photographs that kind of changed my life. Um, The first was a photograph of the uh, man on the box, the hooded man on the box, a photograph of torture being done to people in Iraq at Abu Ghraib prison. And I saw that photograph. I was a doctoral student in theology at the time, and people were calling that image a crucifixion image. And I wanted to understand what it meant to impose that kind of narrative about salvific violence on the box body of a, of a Muslim man. Um, so I changed my life and started writing about those photographs. And the second picture was a picture of a man named Howard Scott. He was in the Boston Globe and it was his birthday. He was 87 and he was holding a violin. And he I learned from the newspaper story about him that he'd been a conscientious objector during World War II and he'd protested the internment of Japanese Americans and was put in prison. And while he was in prison, he built a violin. So I wanted to understand what it means to resist war in that way, what it means to make art in the face of war. So the book kind of emerged from those two photographs. And then one of my students was a soldier who had been stationed at Abu Ghraib prison in Iraq, and he was also a painter. So he painted portraits of detainees that he had once guarded. Um, So the central figures in the book are Howard, the man holding the violin, and Miles, my student. And I'm wrestling with uh, how to respond to violence that feels like it can't be stopped, what difference art can make, and how we should respond to photographs especially when those images are people in pain. So you just mentioned that you you were studying to be a priest, basically, at that point, saw these photographs, and you shortly after leave and embark on this other career. How directly related were those two events? 
They feel directly related now, but those changes took about a decade. <laughs> so I'm not sure how direct they were. Um, you know, I'd started having struggles. I, I was a teacher in Compton, which is a city in South Central Los Angeles, an elementary school teacher right out of college. And that experience really forced me to confront my own complicity in racism and uh, white supremacy and to raise questions about my life, you know, to suggest that meritocracy is a myth and that this system that had really supported me had done harm to my students. And I I thought that churches could be places that would stop racism and greed and make people feel more accountable to one another. So that's why I ended up going to divinity school. I, I wanted to be an Episcopal priest in, in a kind of radical justice way. And I I found the study of theology to reflect that commitment to using God to make the world better. Uh, but in actual institutions of religion, I didn't have that experience. I encountered a lot of sexism and people wanted politics out of the pulpit. So I had a very fast romance with Christianity and then a long undoing of that relationship. And I think those torture photographs were um, part of that, um, thinking through what it means to have a religion that has a tortured man at its center, which is really what Christianity is. And and um, some religious communities take a great stand against torture and others don't. You mentioned that, you know, a decade long journey, but it's also been a decade pretty much to write this book. So what sort of forms has it gone through along the way? Well, some books, you know, some books write themselves. People say this this was the opposite of that. <laughs> I, um, I wrote it first as a novel and then I had a friend tell me that it wasn't working. And after I recovered from the shock of that, because I'd spent several years working on it as a novel, I began to undo it and I pretty much shattered it into fragments. I imagine it almost like a, a piece of glass that I threw on the ground. Around. And then I tried to figure out what I had there and ended up trying to knit it back together. I wanted the book to work as fragments because I wanted there to be lots of white space where the reader could insert her own opinion. I didn't want it to be a polemic. I wanted it to be an invitation to make meaning. And I also think that's how we absorb information. We hear things in fragments. You know, I might be listening to your podcast and then read something in the New York Times and then have a conversation with a friend and we, we create meaning in that way out of fragments. And I also wanted it to work by juxtaposition position. So there's an artist I really like named Fred Wilson, who had an exhibit here where he put together elements of the Baltimore Historical Society, their collection, and he used juxtaposition to make arguments. So for example, he put together a bunch of beautiful silver next to slave manacles that were all made in the same time period to try to make visible the violence of slavery. I wanted my book to work that way. Um, but the process of writing was very physical. I actually cut it up and taped it back together like 100,000 times. So that's how I wrote this book. And it replicates memory as well, the way we create memories. And you talk about that in the book, the ideas around memory, but also, and I don't know if this is overreaching that point a bit, but when we get onto the story of Howard, when you meet Howard at the towards the end of his life, he's struggling with memory as well. And I wondered if somehow that structure of the book was sort of replicating Howard's experience. Yeah, that's beautiful. I was thinking a lot about memory and what makes someone who they are. Um, Howard was losing his mind when I was when I got to know him. And what was beautiful about that? I mean, it's not it's not a beautiful process. It's a terrible process. But what was incredible about his particular experience of losing memories is that the things that were most central to him remained. So he told the story to me about how he and his wife got married over and over again. And the rest of the time he spent talking about peace and pacifism and the need to end war. So but I was trying to wrestle with that idea of what repeats, what do we forget? Does forgetting help us? For example, in the case of traumatic memory, does it harm? You know, what makes us who we are in some kind of way and how we can remember what matters most even when the world's falling apart. 
Let's go back to those two photographs then again. So just describe in a, in a little bit more detail what those photographs were. Well, the first photograph was one of the first that got published in 2004 of the torture by American soldiers of detainees in Abu Ghraib prison in Iraq. And it was the hooded man who is standing on a box. He has a blanket covering him and a hood over his, his face, and he has electrical wires attached to his body. And that photograph, ever since I've seen that photograph, I've been trying to wrestle with what it means to look at pictures of people in pain and what our responsibility is when we see images like that, especially in this case where the photographs were taken to compound the torture. They were, the detainees were told that every time someone looked at, at those images, their humiliation would continue. Continue. Um, so I've really been trying to figure that out ethically. What is my accountability? What is my responsibility? How do I behave when I see something like that? We'll come back to the idea of responsibility later on in the interview. But there's this idea in the book that when you look upon one of these violent images, it's already too late to do anything about it because it's already happened. Yes, that's a theme that runs through a lot of theorists writing about photography is that, um, you know, you've already arrived after the fact. And so what good does your looking really do for the person in pain? I've just read an a fantastic book by a theorist named Ariella Azale. She almost seems to be arguing for a kind of time travel. It's, it's called The Civil Contract of Photography, and it really blew my mind and challenged my thinking. And she talks about the imperative to look and that we end up being bound in relationship with people that we look at. We're citizens of photography, she calls it. And it's our our responsibility to make whatever pain they're experiencing urgent in the present moment, even if that person is already dead. And so I've, I've been trying to think through, what does that mean? How do you live like that? Is that possible? But I think it's really interesting to think about. So Howard, let's t- tell me something more about Howard. Who was he? Howard is um, one of those human beings that you meet that kind of is shines. Um, he, he's a beautiful, beautiful human being totally committed to pacifism and um, made art in the face of war. He was a teacher. He was a professor um, at a university in the ed school, and he um, protested the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II. His college roommate was Japanese American, and his um, roommate's family was interned at Tule Lake, which is one of the internment camps here. And when Howard learned about the internment of Japanese Americans, he realized he couldn't just be a conscientious objector. He couldn't support the war effort in any way. He'd been in California fighting forest fires and decided he needed to take a stronger stand against the internment and against conscription, which he also thought was a violation of people's rights to be forced to fight war. So he walked out of camp and was arrested and put in prison. And while he was in prison, he decided he wanted to build a violin. And he and his wife, Ruane, wrote letters back and forth, and Ruane found an old library book that had directions for how to build a violin and wrote him letters. She was only allowed to write two letters per week, so she had to jam these very complicated instructions onto these typewritten pages and send them to him. And while he was there, he built this instrument, but he never finished it. And his grandson later was instrumental in getting it finished. He was uh, at a furniture-making school and had a friend who built violins, and so she completed the instrument and then presented it to him on his birthday as a surprise. And he just was this person that was committed to peace, to dreaming a better world, and to this idea that we could um, live in a world without war. Um, and it, doing that in the face of World War II is complicated. That's a, a terrible war. When you're confronted with genocide, is pacifism the right response? So that's something that I try to explore in the book, and it's, I think it's really powerful. Where was Howard when you got to meet him then? He was living in a um, retirement community at the time. Um, his family was not happy with the place that he was living, and they ended up moving him into a, a home with a couple that was open their home to 
people that needed to be taken care of, older people, and he lived there with um, just one other woman, and I think that was a much better place for him. Um, so he was, you know, towards the end of his life, and he was struggling with losing his memories, and he would talk about at night he would be visited by these moments from his life in vivid detail, and he said it was this opportunity to get to live those experiences over again, and he would get to say goodbye and thank you to each of these memories. So those were the kind of stories that he would talk about. It was just uh, profoundly moving to be around him. You mentioned the internment camp that Gordon, Howard's roommate, was was interred in. And you actually go in the book and visit the site of another one, Manzana. Where was that and what was that like to actually go to that place? So Manzana is on off of Highway 395 in, in California. And it's in this beautiful part of California where it's near Death Valley and near Mount Whitney, which is the highest mountain in the continental United States. And across the valley from Manzanar are the bristlecone pines, which are the oldest living beings on this planet. So it's this, I've always thought, well, nature can help people have perspective where they'll behave better to one another. But this place really says, no, (laughs) this is one of the most beautiful places. And we actually locked up American citizens for no reason in this spot. Um, But when I first visited, there was nothing there. It had basically been erased um, and not marked as a site at all. But when I went back a couple years later, they'd built a, um, like a visitor center as part of the National Parks Department, and they had made a replica of the camp. The high school classes who'd graduated while they were being interned at Manzanar built a miniature replica of the camp so you could look and see how it how it worked. And there were these really um, terrible places. They lived in temporary buildings, and they would put eight people together at a time regardless of family size, and the bathrooms didn't have stalls, and they'd been taken away from their communities. They'd had to shutter businesses. They lost homes. They lost all kinds of income, and they still managed to make the place beautiful. They made furniture. They planted rose gardens in all of the spots around the United States where there were internment camps. They transformed the landscape with gardens. But I think it's this part of American history that we haven't confronted or in a meaningful way. And with the recent rhetoric around immigration, I'm reminded of this tendency towards racism and xenophobia that emerges in times of fear. I'm interested in, um, well, I don't know to the extent about how interested I am in the, in the way that they've remade it into a visitor centre, you know, confronting that part of America's history from the perspective of the gift shop at the visitor centre, I'm, I'm not sure. But you do talk in the book about, you know, shortly after the camp was dismantled, that actually some of the buildings were repurposed elsewhere, and that sort of like, you know, that place lingered on, but in other forms. Yeah, that was wild when I, I researched that. They had these temporary buildings that at the end of it, they they either took apart and sold um, as scrap lumber that people could use to build into other forms. Or if you if you drive down that valley or up and down that valley, you can see the buildings if you know what to look for. And they were actually repurposed in some cases um, in Native American reservations. Um, and that site already had a violent history um, in its relationship between the white settlers and the Native populations that were already there. So it's this spot where violence just keeps recurring in new and repeating forms that I found very disturbing. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Sarah Centillas, and we're talking about her book, Draw Your Weapons. And Sarah, on to the other photograph. So remind us how these photographs of abuse of the detainees at Abu Ghraib emerged. Well, they first showed up in May of 2004, and they showed up like on the in the New Yorker. There was an article about them, and then they showed up on the front page of the New York Times. Um, and it turned out that American soldiers at Abu Ghraib prison in Iraq, and I think in prisons all over the place, used photography to document and to um, continue the torture that they were inflicting on um, Iraqi prisoners in that place. So you had these strange objects. They remind me a little bit of lynching photography, where in the American South, there were always photographers at lynchings, and they would take pictures of the violence against black bodies, and they would turn them into postcards and send them around the country to celebrate the racist violence that had been done. And these photographs, the torture photographs were similar. They weren't taken to protest the torture. They were taken to compound it. Um, and when they emerged, it was strange. You know, there were all these different responses to them. Some people celebrated them and said, yeah, that's what we do to people who are terrorists. And for other people, it was this moral awakening. What are we doing there? Um, what is happening? What's going on in these prisons? And at first, the low-level soldiers were blamed. They're actually the only people who were sent to prison for what they did. But it turned out as memos were released that this was a program that was really created by the Bush administration and went all the way up. Up, which is not something that has been really dealt with adequately. Um, and it was this revelation that American soldiers were being ordered to torture as part of the war against terror. And the images drew me to them because they were being talked about as if they were crucifixion images. In a way, they look like stations of the cross, you know, the Jesus um, on his way to Golgotha to be crucified. And I wanted to, to figure out what does it mean if you put this Christian narrative on the bodies of these uh, Muslim detainees? What work is that narrative doing? Does it help people see torture as something that should be stopped? Does it make the violence seem salvific? Like if you hurt this one body, it will save the rest of us. You know, what's going on here? So I spent the next decade trying to understand um, how photographs work and how those particular images work and how um, our religious frameworks shape and misshape how we view violence against other people or other beings that we share the planet with. And I also ended up finding in that research that waterboarding, which is one of the things that American soldiers were doing against these detainees, waterboarding has religious roots. It was um, started as a form of forced baptism. Um, so as a person who was studying theology and as a person who was almost a priest, I, I felt like I had a moral responsibility to 
oppose that violence and to figure out what work I needed to do in response to those images. Let's talk about Miles, who turns up at one of your classes one day, becomes one of your students. Who was he? Well, that was a, an incredible experience. I was teaching at a school in California, and I was teaching um, critical thinking and media studies. And on my syllabus were those photographs. I was going to teach a set of articles about those images and wrestle with the ethics of looking at pictures of people in pain. And I showed up to class one day, and, and Miles was waiting for me and told me that he had been a guard at Abu Ghraib prison. So it was almost like my uh, dissertation about those photographs. It was like somebody was coming to life out of my dissertation. And I asked him about his experience and he, he shared with me what it was like to be in war. And it was a profound experience for me because I had been a pacifist. I still consider myself a pacifist, but I think in a way I thought my pacifism let me off the hook that um, because I was philosophically against the wars my country was fighting, that I'd done my part just by having a strong opinion. And the fact that Miles had gone to war in order to get enough money to pay for school. That's why he had gone to war, not because he um, believed in the war or was wanted to fight terrorism. That wasn't his motivation. His motivation was just to get money to go to college. It made me ask really hard questions to myself. What does it mean to teach classes that my students have to go to war to be able to afford to attend? So I spent a lot of time listening to him, and he and I are still friends. And I was especially interested in the fact that he decided to make paintings in response to what he had experienced there. So we talked a lot about art. So let's talk about those paintings. So how was he getting across the experience that he'd had through his art? He talked to very few people about what he'd experienced. I understand that he was experiencing PTSD. Um, I'm not sure he would label his own emotional response that way, but he didn't talk about the war. I was the first person to ask him about his experience there, and he'd been back for over two years. So I think he used the paintings as a way to make public this internal experience that he, he pretty much kept hidden. Um, so he made these beautiful paintings of detainees waiting outside, or he made a self-portrait portraying himself as a soldier called the surge. Um, and I actually have that painting hanging in my house. And he, I think he was processing what it means to be in charge of watching these other human beings. And he got really close to the people that he was guarding. He, there were actually children there and he played chess with them. Um, they played games. They told jokes to pass the time. They did all sorts of strange competitions to make the time go by. And he really thought of himself as a prisoner there. The soldiers slept in cells. They slept in prison cells and so did the detainees. Um, so there was some kind of parallel sense of um, being trapped in a place you didn't want to be. I want to bring us back to photography we started with those two images all the way through the book there's discussions of the you know the sort of various merits and uses of photography around war and around truth and of course you know we say the camera never lies but you know from right from its very beginnings people have manipulated or misinterpreted photography i want to talk about a couple of examples of that that you talk about in the book and first of all there's this incredibly ironic scene with um colin powell at the un well when colin powell um tried to make the case for us to go to war in Iraq, he used a photograph to do that work, and he put up a photograph, an aerial photograph, and I do a lot of writing about aerial photography and its beginnings and its um, strange relationship with truth um, in the book, but he put up a, an aerial photograph that was labeled um, to make the argument that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction, and he said that the photograph was proof of that, and he pointed to some vehicles that he said were used in, in the process of making weapons of mass dest destruction, and that was the photograph that kind of launched this war effort, but it turned out that those photographs weren't what he said at all. I mean, those trucks weren't 
what he said at all. They were actually fire trucks. And um, so I try to think about why we why we trust images so much when they've always been manipulated from the very first photograph that was ever taken. But when he was making that presentation and making his argument about the need to go to war, he was standing in front of a replica of Picasso's Guernica, which is probably one of the most famous anti-war paintings around. And it's a tapestry reproduction. And they covered that image up with a blue curtain. And there's a debate about why they did that. Some people say it was just because it's better for TV to have a solid blue background than to have this um, wild painting behind him. But um, I really think that they covered it because it would be terrible to try to make an argument about the need to go to war in front of a painting that's about the violence of war and its devastating effects. Yeah, even Colin Powell understood the irony of that. (laughs) Yeah, I think so. I think it's on some level he must have. Um, But it's this strange moment where he's using an image to justify going to war while standing in front of an image about the need to end all wars. Um, So you mentioned aerial photography. I want to just touch on that in a moment. But first of all, just a couple of examples of, of that early manipulation of photography. So you talk about a guy... William Mumler, who was a um, a self-described spirit photographer. So what was he doing? Well, William Mumler was uh, working in Boston and he was taking photographs. He would, he would ask people to sit for portraits and he'd take photographs of them and then behind them would emerge these ghosts that were their dead ancestors. And it was during the Civil War and there were so many... Um, dead at that time. And people would lined up by the hundreds to come to his studio to have their pictures taken with the hopes that their, the dead people that they loved would show up behind them in the images. And they did. Um, and there's all these questions about how, how he did that and the use of double exposure um, and the manipulation of this medium that was associated with truth. And I think that's such a prime example of the way that we think about photographs is capturing reality better than any other kind of image making. But because people trust them so much, you can manipulate viewers of images because they believe photographs are telling the truth. It's exactly what Colin Powell did, I think, is happening with those spirit um, pictures. They're quite beautiful photographs to look at. But for me, they just remind me, like, we don't need Photoshop to manipulate images. <laughs> it happened from the very beginning. And I wanted to say something about Charcot as well. Jean-Martin Charcot, the, uh, the French uh, psychologist who was using um, asylum inmates to expound some rather dodgy theories. Tell us about him. Yes. Um, so uh, Charcot was Freud's mentor, um, and he was at a an asylum in, in France where Uh, women had been sent who were being labeled hysterics. And uh, people thought that the women were faking their symptoms. So Charcot decided he would use photography to capture their symptoms and to prove that hysteria was a real thing. And at that time, they thought that hysteria was a result of, of of women's wombs being too dry and kind of floating around the body. So they thought if it landed on your heart, you would have heart palpitations. If it landed in your brain, you would have hysteria. If it was near your lungs, you would have trouble breathing. So it was this really um, sexist kind of imaginary. Uh, But he used photography to capture their symptoms on film. So he would lock the women in these dark rooms with a gigantic flash bulb, and then the flash would surprise them. And in most cases, they're making gestures that you would do if you were locked in a room with a giant flash, Um, but then he would label them with 
certain uh, symptoms of hysteria. So he used that to justify keeping these women imprisoned and putting them on display in this really weird way. And I've been obsessed with those photographs. There's a theorist named Ulrich Beyer who talks about how those photographs mimic the experience of trauma. And you were asking early about memory and trauma being these memories that we don't absorb, we can't make narrative sense of. And Byers arguing that photography works similarly by pulling moments out of the stream of time and separating them from the rest of the time. And, and those images do that kind of work. And I also write about an artist who's recreated those photographs, and she calls them kind of re staged recreations of a staged moment. So thinking through how women's bodies are used against them, um, I find those images really disturbing and, and quite fascinating. Yeah, what's the name of the artist? I, I'm trying to remember as we as we're talking. I wanted to talk a, about another artist that's, that's sort of repurposed that sort of photograph. And these were the photographs that were taken of slaves on plantation. Who's the artist that's just done those photographs where she's printed the photographs with this sort of like text over the um, over the image? Oh, that's Carrie Mae Weems is the photographer. Yes, she's an African-American photographer. Her work is extraordinarily beautiful and powerful. And Yes, indeed. She takes photographs that were taken, ordered to be taken by a biologist named Degazi, who was convinced that there were two moments of creation by God for human beings, one for white people and one for black people. And he wanted to prove the subhumanity of black people so he could justify their enslavement. So he hired a a daguerreotypist to take photographs of enslaved people on the plantation of a man named B.F. Taylor. And he wanted those photographs to prove their inferiority. Um, so there are these really intensely violent images designed to justify slavery. Um, and the artist Carrie Mae Weems took those images and um, printed them with a red filter so they have this kind of red coloring over them and she wrote words on top of them. So I feel like her her art offers a sense of what it might look like to look ethically at pictures that were meant to cause harm to their subjects. And I've been really interested in, in this. There's a, a new group of theorists who are writing a lot about um, how we might look at images that were taken to cause harm and to let those subjects speak to us still to kind of rescue their humanity and to see that they can transcend uh, whatever violence being done to them. Um, I find that really um, fascinating to think about. We're quickly running out of time, but I wanted to. Say, I said I wanted to say something about aerial photography, and you you talk about your I guess ongoing fascination with uh, drones and drone technology in the book. But I wanted to talk about this through another guy, Jules. What's his name? Julius Newberger, the pigeon guy. Yes, <laughs> the pigeon guy. This was so weird when I found when I found out about this. So some of the first aerial photographs were taken by um, Julius Neubronner in, in Germany. He had pigeons, and I think he used them originally to send medication um, to maybe a, another insane asylum, I'm forgetting, but a, a, some kind of hospital. He used them to fly medication back and forth. And one day, one of his pigeons didn't return, and he wanted to figure out where they were going. So he created this device where he could strap a camera to a pigeon, and it would take photographs of where they were flying. So that was the first aerial photographs really ever taken. And you can look at the images, and they're quite beautiful of these landscape below with sometimes tips of pigeon wings framing the image, which I find really beautiful and strange. But he ended up understanding that that, that process had great military relevance. And so he trained his pigeons to fly into the homing device wherever he set it. Um, and then he ended up basically giving his flock to the German military to be used in war. And 
just to finish off then, let's bring back in that idea of, you know, what our responsibility is when confronted with violent images and obviously news of war. And I wanted to sort of talk about how, again, how your, you know, your pacifism, which has always existed, has sort of developed or changed over the course of this decade of putting together this book. Um, and also to sort of bring in the one of the sort of themes of the book, which we haven't really talked about, which is, again, how art itself can be brought to bear. Obviously, the, the title of this book is Draw Your Weapons, and it's sort of a pun because obviously you draw your weapons, but also you're talking about drawing in terms of in terms of art. Yes. I think at the at the heart of this book is my hope, and it's a fragile hope that art might help remake the world. Um, I think that artists, I taught artists for a long time. I taught critical theory to artists, and I, I think that artists do this important work where they're making something new on a small scale, a painting, a cup, a fragment of lace, and they show us in that making that it's possible for us to make new things, and that in community we could make something better. You know what? We could end homelessness. We could make a more just community. Um, so I think that artists show both that the world is made, that it's made by all of us together, that the, the ways we think, the ideas we have, the actions we do have material effects on bodies, and that it can be remade and unmade and put back together. And that that is my hope, that art can help us see each other differently, can help us practice seeing, and can help us practice making things that have a f- better effects on vulnerable bodies. Um, So that's kind of the hope at the center of the book. And sometimes it feels like a powerful hope and sometimes it feels quite naive. I've been talking to Sarah Centillis. We've been talking about her book, Draw Your Weapons. It's published by... It's with text um, in the UK and Australia and with Random House in the United States. Sarah, thank you so much for sharing it with us. Thank you. It was such a delight to talk with you, Neil. Thank you. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.